Hi there. Before you keep listening, please just make sure that you have watched all of season two because we are deviating from our usual format one last time for our third and final bonus roundtable episode. And it is filled to the brim with spoilers. So if you're not all caught up on the action, please just give us a pause, go take a look at episodes one through 10, and then come back and meet us. Hi, guys. You have just tuned in to the For All Mankind podcast. I am your host, Chris Marshall. And today we have the incredibly talented, ridiculously beautiful Sarah Jones, my castmate turned friend turned sister wife, Chantel Van Santen, as well as our wonderful steward, our showrunner, Ron Moore. Hi, guys. Uh, introduce yourselves and let everybody know what you do on the show. I'm Sarah Jones. Hi, I play Tracy Stevens, and it's been absolutely lovely doing so. Chantel, you're up next. Tell the good folks listening in what you do on the show. Um, I do craft services. Um, <laughs> I make Chris Marshall all of her sandwiches and nachos. <laughs> I play Karen Baldwin on the show, who I always say is the better half of the Baldwin family unit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Ron? And I'm Ron Moore. I'm one of the executive producers, and I co-created the show with uh, Matt Wolpert and Ben Dedevi. Okay, here's a quick refresher. Karen has decided to sell the outpost and start a new life for herself, a life that may begin with a divorce from Ed. Up on the moon, shots have been fired. And for a moment, it seems like we're headed into World War III. After one of their own seeks asylum with the astronauts, the cosmonauts take Jamestown base hostage. During the ambush, the threat of nuclear meltdown looms. So, Gordo and Tracy make the ultimate sacrifice. In makeshift duct tape suits, they traverse the lunar surface to initiate backup coolant loops to stabilize temperatures. And in doing so, save everybody's life on the moon. Meanwhile, in orbit, Pathfinder and Baran stand off. And against orders, Danielle proceeds with the docking of Apollo Soyuz, inspiring the president to reconsider the future of American-Soviet relations. You gotta grab all the rolls of duct tape you can find. What's that for? Well, you're gonna wrap yourself in it. Seriously? Beats aluminum foil, that was the first idea. Now, you're gonna wrap every single inch that you can see of your skin, every single inch, because anything that is exposed is gonna balloon up the second you set foot on the surface. It's also close to 200 degrees Fahrenheit out there, which is gonna cause the adhesive of that tape to melt, so, you know. Move your yeah, got it. Hey, remember, you got to breathe out all the air in your lungs or they will burst. So you will have just 15 seconds before you pass out. Let's just talk about the most obvious thing and then go back. <laughs> I am, I'm, I know what happens. I was there when we made it and still was like, had my hands over my eyes, screaming at the TV. <laughs> Close the door, close the door, hurry up, get inside, get inside as Tracy and Gordo expire. So I don't understand 
all the details about what went into exactly what happened to Tracy and Gordo on the moon. Are they boiling? Are they bursting? What is the science behind that? Well, it's it's pressure. So if you think of it like, you know, when people go scuba diving or deep sea diving of any kind, the water is pressing in on them and pressing their bodies and squeezing them very, very tight. Oh, God. Right? This is the opposite of that. So you go mm. up high in the air and you get to a certain height, the oxygen becomes very thin and your body starts to expand. Mm -hmm. So essentially when Tracy and Gordo go outside with that pressure suits on, everything inside of them is struggling to get out. If they had air in their lungs, their lungs would burst because the air is trying to escape. <sighs> so in this situation, the idea was they're trying to keep their body intact as long as they can. So they wrap themselves in duct tape, which would, you know, physically hold them and also keep their, you know, their, their skin from exploding and the blood from rushing through, but their eye, you know, the capillaries and their eyes start to burst and all that. Oof. So the duct tape suit provides some measure of protection for a few moments, but ultimately they have to get back into a pressurized environment or they would expire. My God, I mean, I can't think of a worse way to die. It's a pretty gruesome way to go. <laughs> it's not a good one. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it. Um, and Jonesy, tell me about the process of, because I know you had a few different duct tape suits, one that was more formed, and then later they started to unravel. Yeah, we had phases. I think we had three phases of mm -hmm. duct tape suits. And uh, Michael and I enjoyed doing the robot in them. Um, <laughs> we've got video to prove it. The first suit was very tight. It's kind of a relief by the time we got to phase three where they had to rip some of the suit up and create kind of like boils Oof. on certain parts of our bodies. Um, and they, they did an incredible job. And yeah, that's, I mean, that really was what it was. And, you know, and then we just had to run on the moon with it. <laughs> with it, you know, in a really tight suit. Uh, yeah. I mean, I am, I'm, I'm so sensitive to just hearing this story about Ron talking about bursting capillaries and you talking about boils. I'm, I'm getting clammy and my hands are getting wet. So yeah. I'm going to take our audience and myself back, 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 because I need a breather because I'm feeling verklempt. <laughs> Mr. Day Cordova, that's Johnny's producer, he had a great idea about... Uh, maybe shooting a few segments while I'm up at Jamestown? Yeah, I need you to be less concerned with Johnny and uh, more focused on the program right now. Oh, it'd be great for the program, Ed. And give kids a close-up look at the moon and all the amazing things we're doing up yeah, there. Yeah, that's all well and good, Trace, but you launched in less than a month and you just missed your third sim, so... I know. I'm sorry, Ed. I, uh... I just got the schedule mixed up with all the celebrating that... Sam and I have been doing. I've just been a little distracted. So talk to me, uh, Ron, about how we find Tracy, because, I mean, when we meet Tracy, she's a celebrity and she's so cool <laughs> and she's drinking on the freaking job. And I'm just like, wait a minute, what happened to this like country girl with a heart of gold who's piloting the Piper Cub and is tough as nails. And now she's this, you know, this rock star. I mean, how did you guys decide, like, yeah, we're taking Tracy somewhere. The audience has no plan for her to go. Well, you know, it began with, you know, conversations about, well, where are these people 10 years later? And we started talking about Tracy and the fact that she had done such a, um, 
a remarkable thing at the end of the first season. You know, it was high profile. She had saved Molly Cobb, done it before national television, and it was a big event. And kind of felt like after all those things were over, they'd all be celebrities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But of that group, who was the one that would probably be the most, you know, vivacious on TV, the one Mm -hmm. that would probably everybody would would gravitate to, and it would probably be Tracy. <laughs> like Baldwin would go on and kind of bow his head and go, yeah, well, and kind of mumble. And Ellen <laughs> just doesn't like doing that and probably wouldn't be her thing and mm-hmm. would probably get in. Molly absolutely wouldn't do mm-hmm. any of it. Mm-hmm. But Tracy, Tracy would be on the cover of People and Tracy mm-hmm. would go on, you know, on The Tonight Show and that it would just take off and she would become the astronaut, you know, a celebrity. And that was just a lot of fun as we started thinking about it and that she would really go for it and it would really kind of let her come into her own in a, in a different way than what she did in, in season one. And we just, we, it was also just fun. As soon as we came up with it, it was like, oh, this is going to be great. I mean, it is just delicious. It's delicious. And I, I teased Sarah and I was like, you got the freaking best wardrobe out of all of us because you're, you've got on true, vintage Givenchy and Versace. You look yeah. good, girl. Don't talk <laughs> to me about this. You know, the, these guys say we're getting a season two. You're stoked. The last you've seen of Tracy is that she is this, you know, devoted uh, astronaut and this mother. And now you dive into, you know, Diva Tracy. So what yeah. was that process like for you? How did you reconcile the girl we once knew and the woman who she is at the start of season two? You know, you, have, you when you're bridging 10 years, I tried to bridge the gap between those 10 years. And sort of the first thing I did was, well, I just thought about aging in general, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought about where I was at 10 years ago in my life and what's changed and what hasn't and sort of assessed <laughs> my life in that way. And then sort of did the same with Tracy. Um, and sort of the foundation of what I came to with her was that unless you give yourself the validation and approval mm-hmm. that you you hope to find, you're never really going to get it from anything else. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of wanted to take that through from the first season to the second. And I'm really glad I did because of the way that the second season ended. Um, because I think she found that finally. She found Mm -hmm. her footing of, no, this is who I am, actually. I'm not going to let the love of my life go out there on his own. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to go back and tell our boys that he didn't have to die and I could have done something. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let this place blow up. I'm not going to sit around and do nothing. This is who I am. I'm going to do it. And, you know, in the first season... Tracy's consistently trying to prove herself to everyone, to her husband, to Molly, to NASA. And she literally had to pull off one of the most insane piloting moves (laughs) that could ever be done. If there was an Olympics for piloting, she would have won the gold and held the record for uh, 50 years, maybe Mm -hmm. 100. Who knows, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And that still wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. That still wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. If it was enough for her in season one, it would be a very different career trajectory in season two. So mm-hmm. I wanted to continue that. And and that also was a factor in, in why I really wanted to play into the fact that she's she's a bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing when, when she's drinking and smoking in the 60s and 70s as 
everyone did, and it's sure. casual and it. But she's a mess. In no, she's the last the to leave the party in many yeah, ways. She's, she's yeah, she's yeah. she's dealing with some demons. That was sort of my motivation. You, you don't get to just drop a bomb in the middle of our lives and then just say that. Yeah, we'll 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 figure it out. No, no, you you need to decide. You need to decide whether this marriage, us, us. It's, it's something that you're interested in saving. Really, Ed? Life's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, it's not complicated. You're either in or you're out. No, it's not that simple, Ed. You just don't like to live in the gray. The gray. I don't like to live in the gray. What the f is that supposed to mean? You like it simple, Ed. You want up or down, in or out, yes or no. You live in a perfect binary world that the rest of us don't live in. We live in the... I live in the gray where everything is complicated and nothing is simple. I mean, there is no greater poster child for releasing the wheel on white knuckling than Karen Baldwin. <laughs> but we see her at the end of season one and she is just so buttoned up. I mean, everything about her from her perfectly coiffed hairdo sprayed with Aquanet. Oh, yes. <laughs> to the perfect red lipstick, you know? I mean, every single thing about her is just so immaculate. And then we see her at the top of season two, and she is just cool. I mean, she really seems to have kind of taken her hands off the wheel and relaxed in many ways. Ron, can you talk a little about that, about Karen's story and what you all were thinking in the writer's room? Karen was definitely a big challenge. Uh, going into the season, we weren't sure at the outset where we wanted her to be, in part because, you know, the story of the loss of Shane and then her own sort of you know, moment of, of clarity and, or epiphany towards the end of season one were not things that we had put into the overall schematic of the show. They were just kind of evolved as we were telling the stories. So we didn't have a clear direction of where that was going to take her. So it took a lot of conversation um, about Karen. And our initial story that we did start to script was watching her take on, first it was uh, buying the outpost, mm -hmm. getting coming up with the idea of buying the outpost. And then it becomes the money pit, you know, and then she's trying to rehab it and discovering all the problems with the place and falling further into debt and and uh, uh, mortgaging the, the house and, you know, just watching sort of Karen be a businesswoman for the first time, you know, in her life. And that was sort of her arc of the season. And as we got further into it, it felt less satisfying because you kind of knew where it was all going. Mm -hmm. You could kind of predict everything. So then we sort of retooled that and went back. All right, so let's start with she's at the outpost and it's failing and it's crumbling and it's like she's had it for a while and it's just falling apart and how does she get out of the, the disaster? Mm -hmm. And that one wasn't interesting either. Mm -hmm. And then it became more, well, what if she's just good? <laughs> how about she's good at it? And it's more mm -hmm. interesting and surprising to step in. She's had 10 years to figure this out. And let's meet Karen. And she's actually at the top of her game. Mm -hmm. Like she's got it and she's mm -hmm. doing it. And the home, everything is good at the Baldwin house was like the concept when we fade mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. Ed's got a regular job now. Karen's made the outpost a success. Mm -hmm. They have an amazing adopted daughter who's getting ready to go to college. It's all good. Now let's watch it go to hell. Then that became the story of the season. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never see things coming, but I will tell you, Karen's journey through season two shocked me. Um, talk to me about that journey of creating this new Karen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So when we finished eight, I remember being like, she's not going to do her hair. She's not going to wear her makeup. And then in 10, when I knew that I had to go into uh, to JSC 
um, for everything that was unfolding. I remember choosing to break the mold in small ways. Like she normally never would show her arms. And I decided she was going to be a little rebellious and show her arms. She wasn't going to quaff her hair. She slicked it back into a ponytail because that's about as much effort as she could do. And she didn't wear her lipstick. She didn't do the things that she normally did. And, and in those slight little ways, I felt like there was this opening to what and where she could go, the possibility of shifting and changing away from the structures that she upheld in her life. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, is she going to divorce Ed and throw her body on the streets because she doesn't care? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like in my mind, there was all mm -hmm. these crazy possibilities of like, mm -hmm. what's going to happen? Because mm -hmm. being a mother was mm -hmm. everything to her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It actually was her source of pride and joy. So now, who is she going to be? So I feel like it's funny because as much as we see her release a little, I actually think that she just kind of picked up new projects that mm -hmm. were a little bit different. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to like, I'm sure you find this, to pick up in, in episode one and two and feel like, okay, I know this person. This is an old friend. I put the clothes back on. I, I, mm -hmm. I get her now. And then the writers like to be like, okay, now that you have a good grasp, we're going to go out and make a straight up U-turn and then a left and go down the hill. You ready? Right. right. Um, and then blow the car up. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I, I, first of all, I'm, I'm watching the show. I'm making the show. I'm seeing the episodes. I am dear friends with you. And yeah. I'm still learning things about your journey as Karen, which is just like, I guess that's the nature of knowing someone and loving someone is that you continue to discover them in new ways. To be honest, I, I had to learn the first season a massive amount of empathy because I didn't like Karen the first season. I, was I did not just agree. Going, I, I had that as my list of questions yeah. because not to be rude, but like mm -hmm. Karen's stuck up, right? I yeah. mean, she is she's just so... quote unquote Karen. You know what I mean? Like right? She's a Karen. Yeah, yes. she's a Karen before Karen's existed. Yeah. So how do you, Chantal, who is so accommodating, so non-judgmental, so cool play this woman who is so rigid, so judgmental. She's kind of a not great friend to Tracy at some points. Yeah. Um, how did you find your way through that? Yeah, I, I felt like the Karen that was on the paper and the ideas and beliefs that she had were very opposed to mine and therefore not likable. Mm -hmm. That was my opinion. And mm -hmm. I remember being like, gosh, ugh. She's the worst sometimes. Why would she say this? Like, and then I thought, where's it coming from? Mm -hmm. The first season getting to know Karen and playing Karen taught me a massive amount of empathy and compassion. And then this season, I really had to learn to not judge somebody who is discovering their truth. Mm -hmm. Because discovering and owning your truth, it means you're going to mess up a lot. And so when I watched Karen go on this journey this season and make mistakes and be human, mm -hmm. I had to take a step back and say, this is okay. People need to see this to know that it's okay to make mistakes and that we are so human and that forgiveness can still happen. And, you know, we can triumph after we fail or fall. It's okay to, to play this failure and it's okay that people aren't going to like every part of her because you know what it probably speaks true to something within me or them. 
to me, you know, the sort of lovely thing about stories is that people are not just a monolith, right? So for Tracy, we have this woman who is an incredibly dedicated mother and an amazingly talented pilot. And then we also have this person who is lazy, who's not paying attention and who's not taking the job very seriously. And with Karen, you know, she's this loving mom, this go-with-the-flow, easy-breezy businesswoman. But she's also this wife who's feeling trapped and just ready to explode. So, Ron, how do you, as a storyteller, marry these seemingly juxtaposed personalities all into one character? Well, that's, I mean, that's really the fun of the job as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's its really mm-hmm. finding the disparate elements in a character's makeup that, that define who that character is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that, that's just sort of based on real people too. I mean, if you just look at the astronaut program and really looked at the astronauts and their lives and who they were, they were often, you know, very contradictory people mm-hmm. at, at home and what they did professionally. And um, But I think human beings are just like that in general, you know, and mm-hmm. as writers... Uh, especially in writers' rooms, it's usually a lot of fun when you're just talking about the characters and you're just talking about them as people and what are the things that make them tick and what are the jagged edges of them, Mm -hmm. whatever face they present to the public or whatever face they present to their friends and sometimes their family. There's this other face, there's this other part of them that, you know, the demons that they're running from or the demons that they sometimes embrace. And I usually find those much more interesting. And I've always tried to do that in my career is to usually seek out what are those demons in these characters? What are the things that, you know, that they're afraid of about themselves or the things about themselves that they love, but they secretly hate the fact that they love that part of themselves? And just hours and hours of conversations are, are spent on just dissecting all the characters psychologically and emotionally. I mean, I'm in awe of the ability to kind of marry the yin and yang of these people. And like you said, this is how real human beings are. Like Ellen, for example, is a very honest, believes in honesty, believes in doing the right thing. And then we see Ellen factually lie to everybody and, you know, basically shank Margot and lie to Molly's face because she's got this grander goal of, you know, having the power to send us to Mars. Um, So it's wild to see and it's really beautiful. It makes you kind of sort of love these guys and hate them all at the same time, which I think is the mark of a really good character. And the collaboration too, beyond just the writers, but with our hair and makeup and wardrobe. Like I remember going in and I didn't know what they were going to choose. Like Mm -hmm. there's a way that like I would put on a belt so that way it was a tiny bit polished because I think that Karen cares about appearances Mm -hmm. per se, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that she's laxed so much. And even letting her I had like a half wig on for most of the season letting her gray hair grow in and Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. color dyeing her hair perfect and and being a little a little bit more messy around the edges a little looser in the shirt like all those metaphors that we're able to add that we don't need to say but that we hope evokes a feeling Mm -hmm. um, in the audience or that they pick up on the subtleties and the nuances of the whole creative process and allows them to invest more in our characters and in the journey. What were some of the things that you came across? Like, I remember you had some weird etiquette handbook that you had on set that was about, oh like, how to be a good wife mm-hmm. and, like, handbook a, a wife. Handbook for the housewife. Handbook for the housewife. Handbook for the housewife. And there was another one uh, that was, like, 
cookbook for the stay at home, a mom or something. It was, it didn't sound as modern, but I remember taking pictures and, and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the props department was incredible. Always getting very authentic things. And I was very adamant about making sure before we started season one, getting into my living room and kitchen and making it my own. Because I was like, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is my space. I know where every single thing is. And they're so great about that. Even going into season two, I said, I don't want it to feel as perfect. I want to have mm-hmm. it actually want it a little bit more cluttered. Mm-hmm. And again, when people watch, it may never be something they notice. But I said, I want more stuff in here. Like there were just these subtleties. And they're so great about allowing me to have a, some say-so in that. Mm-hmm. I remember early on, I saw the scene, uh, my opening scene, which is when Danielle is sitting in the car and she's anxious about going in and talking to the guys. You know, the props department said, hey, you know, we have a handful of Bibles from you, for you to choose from. And I chose one that just felt like me. I was excited about it. And unbeknownst to me, our props department reached out to my mom to get real family photos of my family because they took note that I, Chris, put, instead of using bookmarks, I use photos as my bookmarks when I have a book. And so they reached out to my mom and they got real photos of my aunts and uncles from the 1980s. And so that day when I came to set and I started to do that scene and I opened up my Bible, tucked inside was a real photo of my real family. And I just felt so much like it was as if, you know, the Holy Ghost just shot straight through me. I was like, oh my God, this is so powerful. And so from that point forward, whether it was a scene of of Danny coming into the bar and saying, hi, Bob, or it's Danielle coming to talk to Ed in the astronaut office, it didn't matter. I always made sure that I had that Bible with me because even though the audience couldn't see it, these sort of talismans that you find as an actor and then hold on to them, they they imbibe your story and your character with just more more depth, more more light, more dark, just more. I always loved flying, ever since I was a little girl. <laughs> My father taught me. He was a cargo pilot in Memphis, Tennessee. Something about being up there in the clouds always makes me feel like I'm still close to him. And then when NASA opened up the program to female astronauts, well, I just jumped at the chance. (laughs) Ron, I'm curious about who in your life is woven into this story. Because I mentioned to either Matt or Ben about how my grandmother was a lady's maid and used to clean ladies' houses in the 1950s. And so then I saw that come back into Danielle's story. And it was sort of lovely that these guys have their ears open and they're just scooping up these little nuggets of our real lives and sewing it into the fabric of our world. Is there anybody in your life who you were thinking of and just stealing little bits and pieces and making it into these characters? Yeah, I mean, I am a thief. You know? <laughs> and there's a line that Nelson says in the show where uh, he says, you know, the best way to, to hold a piece of ground on this world or any other is a man with a rifle. Mm-hmm. And that's something my father used to say. My father was a former Marine infantry officer in, in Vietnam. It was a mantra he lived by was, you know, the best way to hold a piece of ground is a man with a rifle, and that's never going to change. 
So I put that in the show. I was like, that's such a, that's such a great concept. I was like, yeah, that, that's kind of an eternal truth. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, you know, you just steal from everyone around you constantly. Mm-hmm. So there, there are bits and bats of all kinds of people in my life. And in fact, my wife is very fond of watching things with me and she'll suddenly hit my arm because I've literally stolen a piece of dialogue that she's heard me say or she said <laughs> or something that was said at the dinner table. Uh, like, for instance, in episode one, uh, Spaghetti Night, at the outpost. <laughs> Spaghetti meat sauce is one of my wife's uh, specialties and our kids are obsessed with it and I'm obsessed with it. So spaghetti night is like a big deal in our house. And that <laughs> conversation that. that Ed has with them where he's complaining about the cheese. He wants the <laughs> cheese in the in the green <laughs> the green in thing. The, can. the green can and they gave him fresh <laughs> and he hates it. That's like lifted almost verbatim from things I have said because I too rebelled. I wanted where's my green can of of cheese bits. And they were like, but this is fresh grated cheese. And I was like, no, it doesn't even melt right. And my daughter will just say, You are so old sometimes. You are just so old. <laughs> No, if we're gonna have enough. Yeah, there's plenty. Well, not for both of us. Trace, you're not. Oh, the hell I'm not, Gordo. This is too important. You don't pull this off, and everyone up here dies. American, Russian, all of us. Look, maybe, maybe if you only had to swap the cable, you could make it back. But there is no way you can do this and reach that power switch. It's suicide, and you know it. But if we both go, we we have a shot at making it back. If we don't, Danny, Jimmy. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Don't you dare make me tell our boys their daddy didn't have to die. Trace. End of discussion, Gordo. We can do this. Together. Let's go. I have to say, you know, I feel like it's it's hard for me to divorce how Danielle feels about Tracy and Gordo versus how Chris feels about Michael and Sarah, because I just, I just adore these two so much. So when it came to my knowledge that these guys were going to go, of course, I think about how this affects my character, but then I think about how it affects me, you know, like as a cast, we're just it's probably a bit codependent how close we are with each other. And so the idea of really just cutting out the heart of who we are as a group. Yeah. I mean, Ron, why did you do it? Why (laughs) are you doing that? Why did you do that to us? Sarah and Michael were just such a pain in the ass at a certain point, you just (laughs) decide you got to make a move. So. No. <laughs> no, it had nothing to do with that. Don't take that clip and run with it on the yes, internet. Yes, please, please don't. No. Uh, it was actually something that uh, developed relatively late in the process. We didn't set out to do it. It just sort of developed as things often do in the writer's room when we were kicking around the story and working it through. And it kept feeling like there was a bigger dramatic moment to be had as we approached the end of the season and the end of that particular episode. And... We always had them going out together on the run, and we always had them coming back into the airlock together. And then somebody, I don't, I honestly don't remember who, just kicked out the idea, well, maybe one of them should die. Oof. And it was like, oh. Wow, we, we just got a laughed. taste of the writer's room, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, I, and can I just say for a moment that, like, as actors, it's all so precious to us, and there's just so much thought. And I love that you guys are just sitting around a table being like, Let's Maybe kill her. Kill him. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's just, it's let's a very casual. <laughs> Somebody just says, hey, you know, one of them could die. And we all went, ah, no. And then, and then that thought hangs in the air. And you kind of go, 
yeah, that would be pretty good. No, but we don't want to kill. We're not trying to get rid of it. Well, you know, it is pretty good. And then you really start talking about it. And you went back and forth quite a bit about should anybody die? Should one of them die or should both of them die? And each side had various, you know, advocates one way or the other. But it, what it really came down to was what's the best story here? And what was the mm-hmm. best in for their story because we had built them up both over the course of this season. We had sort of split them up at the beginning of season two and really worked then to sort of bring them back together. And what was the best ending to that story just felt like, well, they should go out together in a blaze of glory. They should sacrifice themselves and save everybody was sort of the best ending. Right. Um, Sarah, I want you to talk about what this experience has been like. I know the audience is thinking like, I'm thinking like, what the hell do we do now? So take me there. <laughs> I I don't know what we do now. Um, you know, I, I mean, this experience has been quite unique. And I always think that when there is a cast that bonds and enjoys each other's company, as well as having a sort of professionalism and process in the way that they work that also meshes really well together. It's lovely. It sort of brings the best work environment that you could possibly be in. This show is unique in that there's, you know, there's not one bad apple on the bunch. It's Hmm. it's just, it's a solid crew. But I tend to agree that ultimately with this story, it just sort of works out. I mean, he kind of got a taste of it in season one mm-hmm. where Tracy was willing to risk her life to save Molly. Mm-hmm. She was willing to put her crew at risk. She was willing to go the distance to make sure that everyone was okay. And it would not have made sense for her to stay behind mm-hmm. in that final sort of heroic move that Tracy and Gordo pull off and if Gordo's going down, she's going down with it. They go down in flames. Jones, talk to me about um, you and Michael, about Tracy and Gordo and about you and Michael when you discovered that you guys were getting back together. How was that process for you of like reworking, I think it was, I guess, seven and eight when you guys started to kind of romantically feel like there's something going you know, back again with Gordo and Tracy, at least on Tracy's end. I know Gordo says much earlier on to Sam, I'm getting the baby back. Um, But for you, what was that experience like? I certainly had mixed feelings about it. I felt like Tracy had moved on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that first season with him, his infidelity, it cut her so deep that when she was finally able to cut out of the marriage and start her own way in her own life and find her own footing, you know, that for me personally, it was difficult to come back to the idea that Gordo would just fly up to the moon, say a few things, and now they're back together. Mm -hmm. And so it was also very hard to imagine that Tracy would go there while she's still in a marriage, just because mm, it's it's mm-hmm. something that's so valuable and meaning meaningful to her. And Tracy is someone who ultimately her moral compass is actually quite high. Sure. You know, right. she is willing to put a lot of other people before herself. And that sort of duality at the beginning of the year where she's just a mess is her struggling, I think, really to, to put herself first. And she doesn't know how. Right. She has no idea how to. 
And she does it through all these avenues that ultimately get her nowhere. Sorry, I went off on a tangent a bit no, there. But no, you're being honest. Because I think, I think let me just stop you for a second and say yeah. that so often um, I hear in interviews and they say, hey, actor A, what did you think about the choice that the writers wrote for you? And the actor goes, I loved it. It was great. It was the perfect choice. And I <laughs> love your honesty that you're just like, yeah, this was tough. This was tough for me to wrap my mind around because the worldview that I have of Tracy is this kind of person who would have moved on. And I appreciate your honesty of just saying like, that was a hard pill to swallow. It was hard to to make sense of for you. Well, and it's also, I mean, it's part of the job. When the writers have a vision, they have a vision. And, you know, fortunately in this show, you have this open dialogue where you can say, hey, can you help me bridge this gap here? This is mm-hmm. where I'm a little lost. I know where you want me to get to. So how do I do that? Because this is where I'm coming from. And, and, you know, I haven't had to do it often, but the times that I've reached out and asked for that help, it's always been addressed. There's always been a backstory or a motivation or an inspiration. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've even had this kind of conversation with Ron in, in the first season about some stuff. And he's always been able to give that to me where then I can look at a situation or I can look at the story or I can look at what they're trying to say in the entirety of the story. Sure, sure. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about that in that um, it reminds me that, you know, our vision of the character beyond this season, if if Tracy and Gordo had made it, is not that much different because we didn't think they she would get back together with Gordo after right. that. Mm-hmm. The scenario we had kind of plotted before we came up with the idea of killing them was that <laughs> Tracy hits rock bottom on the moon, Gordo makes the grand effort, there's a moment they have together after the fireworks were over and after they they had saved the world and come back into that airlock, it, they were still Tracy and Gordo and the same sure. problems were still there and the mm-hmm. same issues of trust were still there and they weren't going to put it back together. Right. And so season three was going to be, they're split up still, you know, and Gordo mm-hmm. had right. gone on. And, but it wasn't that far off really of what, you, of what you're saying because we knew that Gordo's infidelity had cut her very deeply and then that wound would not be easy to paper over. We just right. thought that there would, could be a moment for these two Mm-hmm. When they are together again, it's an isolated situation. They've both gone through amazing traumas and they are kind of soulmates, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, and that that would never go away, even if they couldn't be with each right. other anymore, mm-hmm. that yeah. they could never really be married again. They could never really be together, but they could also never really be apart. There was sure. always going to be this gravitational thing that was going to like make them circle each other sort of sort of forever. Right. right. Ron, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Tracy truly risking her life, um, about Molly actually exposing herself to radiation, knowing full well that she's going to spend maybe an hour on the moon to only recover either a dead man or who knows what's happened to Wubbo, you know, when she heads out. Um, Danielle breaking her arm, Tracy and Gordo um, risking their lives and eventually ending their lives to, to save the greater good. Can we just talk about the sort of overarching theme of these heroes in our story? Well, I, th- I think that's something that Matt and Ben and I talked about from the beginning in terms of how we wanted to portray the agency and the astronauts and r- really everyone involved in, in the program. That uh, by our lights, NASA's endeavor was heroic by definition. You know, it's pushing the boundaries of science and knowledge and exploration and moving us, you know, out of the cradle and into the universe in in a very real way. And I grew up with a sense of uh, feeling that that endeavor was a heroic one. 
but a dangerous one. And that sort of lends itself toward people, you know, acting in brave ways and making sacrifices and being willing to give up their lives in pursuit of higher ideals and also to save the people that they know, whether they're, or people that they don't even know, people back on Earth or people that are, you know, in some other spaceship and that people that are called to this program um, are called to something higher than themselves and they are pushing the boundaries of, you know, what it does mean to be a hero in a lot of ways and doing things for the first time. And I guess those themes have kind of um, been part and parcel of For All Mankind from its inception. You know, we didn't want to do a, a cynical version of the space program or, a, you know, an idea that these uh, men and women that were doing these things uh, in space and on the ground were doing it for purposes that were less than heroic. You know, we could just kind of approach the series that way and we sort of have maintained that kind of attitude from ever since. I have been talking to all these guys and each time we are wrapping up our sessions by saying, um, what is your rose and what is your thorn about this experience? And for you, Jones, sigh, what's your rose and thorn about um, the entirety of For All Mankind, considering that this this is your send-off, my love? Yeah. Um, well, of course, the rose is the relationships that I've built with... Um, Me? People of, yes, <laughs> obviously, number one, number one. No, um, yeah, the bonds that have, I've created with certain cast members on the show are really meaningful to me. I don't think they're going to go anywhere ever. And, you know, I mean, getting to work with you, Ron, getting to work for you, getting to have that experience it's something I treasure in my career path um, and value greatly. And so, and the thorn is that, you know, it's done now. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> That's it. So, um, you know, but hey, you know, onward and upward. And and I'm really excited to see where all of this goes for y'all. And um, happy, very happy um, that y'all are working on a third season. And um and of course, wish everyone my absolute best and sending all my love. Okay, Chantel, what's yours? My rose would be from Ron to Ben to Matt to Meryl, all of our, our writers, our executive producers. Um, the story that they crafted for Karen terrifies me, mm -hmm. you know, and in the best mm -hmm. of ways. And it's allowed me to challenge myself, which we don't always get in the acting world. Sometimes something mm -hmm. is similar to us. And so it feels a little easy mm -hmm. or, um, you know, it's within our wheelhouse or something we've already done. And, and, and so for me, the rose was and is the challenges that they keep handing to me and that mm -hmm. I really have to dig into with Karen. And I feel as though I'm slowly earning my place is not the bench warmer, but maybe the starting lineup. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, my only thorn and, mm -hmm. and it will forever be in my side is that hmm. um, I, I'll never be the one that gets to be in space. Mm. The six-year-old girl in me is just geeking out that her friends get to like live part of her dream out, even if it's in a fake reality and that I just get to watch it unfold. And I'm not a very um, 
jealous person. Instead, I just live through all the stories and experiences you guys share. And I've said in on the astronaut meetings, like, I don't have questions. My hands are up on my face. Like, just tell me all the stories. Um, so that's the only thorn is that it's it feels like I'm so close to, to being in space and outer space on this show, but that I don't actually get to go there. Yeah. Ron, can you share with us what your rose and thorns are of this season? And also about the process, too. If there's anything about the process that's a thorn for you, any of it. I guess, you know, in terms of the process, it's, you know, the rose is is the creation of it. It's sitting in the writer's room and in mm. the editing room, which are very similar experiences. They're sitting with people and talking and laughing and arguing and struggling <laughs> and making something amazing coming out of it. And I'm always amazed by the, the quality of writers, you know, that I get to work with and them watching their minds work and the fun of being able to riff off of them and come up with stories. I, I, it's just a joy. And I, I've loved it ever since my first writer's room. And I, I continue to, to just, you know, cherish it to this day. And the Rose, you know, probably on this show in particular, is just that it was uh, so close to my heart. You know, something I grew up with was the American space program. And you know, watching those Apollo landings when I was a child turned me on to science fiction, which turned me to Star Trek, which, you know, changed my life and gave me my career. And so it's really been an amazing experience to be able to go back to something that was so meaningful to me. And the thorns are just, um, you know, the thorns are the struggles and the arguments and fighting mm -hmm. about notes and budgets. And there's a lot of sort of daily combat <laughs> that you deal with as a showrunner where you're just fighting. There's a lot of fighting and it, it, it starts to wear at you. Mm -hmm. And uh, But every time it really wears at me, I, I, you know, I just look at the show and I'm just in love with it. And I just feel good about what we're doing. And it makes the, makes the wounds heal a, a little faster. Has anybody ever asked you this question? Which one? What's your rose and your thorn? Oh, wow. Um, wow. Way, way to flip it back on uh -huh. me. I was not ready for that. <laughs> um, my rose, oh my gosh. I mean, the, the audience is already sick of me saying this, but I just love this cast. Like, yeah. I just love this cast. And, um, you know, it is, I wish it weren't so rare, but it is a rare occasion when you get to work on a job that doesn't feel like work. You know, like the, mm -hmm. the stories we tell are incredible. The world that we portray and come to life is just, it's the chance of a lifetime. Um, but the true rose of it all is getting to be with you guys. Um, I feel like I inherited a family. Yep. <laughs> um, I just feel so seen and accepted and included and important. It does wonders for the spirit to feel like you have a place that you belong in a community yeah. that actually really appreciates you. You know, not just you, Ron, but all of our executive team making not just me, but all of us feel like um, we have agency, we have autonomy, we have voices that matter. I feel like now as a woman, um, as a woman of color is such an important time to feel like my voice is appreciated, encouraged, validated. And I feel like I've for sure grown as an actor, but really grown as a woman in this experience. And I'm just ever so grateful for it. Um, and uh, so that is by far my rose. Um, my thorn is, you know, the inconsistency. I mean, the inconsistency definitely wears on my insecurities. Um, it's always very frightening to know 
um, that this will come to an end at some point. You know, thank God we got a season three, which is awesome. But I don't know what the future holds after that. So the thorn is, you know, not knowing when it's going to come to an end and trying to just live in the moment and not anticipate um, the end of it all because it has been so good and it has been so fun. Um, and I don't want it to, but I know that it will. And so I'm having to already in advance come to grips that at some point this will end. So thank you guys so much for joining me on the season finale episode of the For All Mankind podcast. And to our audience, thank you guys for coming along with us on this journey. And uh, stay tuned for season three because we are getting right back to work. Ron, can you give our audience just a little sneak peek about season three, what we can look forward to? Uh, well, I can give it to you in one word. is Mars. Yeah. yeah. Season three is Mars, and we get there in the 90s, baby. We get there in the 90s. So incredible. We're going. On the next episode, we're looking at the moon, when we're going back, and what it would take to live on the lunar surface, just like we do on the show. We'll learn about what principles and developing technologies will make it possible for humankind to make the moon our next home. This is Chris Marshall, Safe and Sound Earthside. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed. And watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by At Will Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati. Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, Patrick Farrell, and associate producer Dominique Ibekwe. Production coordination by Latavia Young. Sound editing by the At Will Media team. Sound designed and mixed by 1000 Birds.